support for the Greater Than Code podcast comes from O'Reilly Fluent and Velocity Conferences happening in San Jose, California, June 11th to 14th. Don't miss your chance to get double the exposure to practical knowledge, expert speakers, and networking opportunities that can immediately boost your own skill set and elevate your team's performance. Save on your pass using the code GTC20. Learn more at O'Reilly.com slash better together. Do either of you blog or write? I do. Sam, do you blog? I used to blog, but I think I stopped when Obama got elected. Just about. <laughs> and since then I was I've been on Twitter and that's where my energy goes. Yeah. Do you you do you blog Doshi Coraline? Infrequently, but I am writing every week my book. What do you write about? The book is called A Compassionate Coder. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we it's about, about that. practicing empathy and software development. How I just do you had to do a that? very difficult chapter about things that make you think that you're practicing empathy when you're really not. Such as what? In-group and out-group empathy. We talk about the situation where someone who is abusive, we try to empathize with them and end up forgiving them for their abuses. Mm. Which again yeah, is not empathy. Are often really skilled manipulators, and people. Yeah. yeah, and um, also we talk about whether empathy is a zero sum game and tie in with like spoon theory and like is everyone deserving of empathy and is empathy an emotional drain? So it's really difficult to write because I believe in empathy so strongly and I believe it makes us better people to practice it. So to think about the ways in which it could go wrong was really, really difficult. That's tough. I don't know if I could write that. It was definitely our toughest chapter so far, but kind of what we went into it with was this might be the most important chapter we write, and no one else can do this. So so lately, one of the things that I have been thinking about, which comes up every now and then, is how much responsibilities I feel to explain things that occur or maybe even things that have made me feel certain ways, you know, versus not being pigeonheld into a position where that's what I'm known for. Yeah. Which is something I, I don't know what the right mix of that is, because one of the things I don't want to do is become a person who only talks about like race and gender yeah. only because that's what people ask me about because they think I know something that they don't know. And it also kind of makes me angry, not so much that people ask, but I always wonder, like, why are you asking, why aren't you asking people who are saying or doing something that you think is sexist or racist, as opposed yeah. to asking me? Like, I don't know. Like, why, you assume, like, it's a one-sided story. It's not. I mean, if, if they are perpetrating some behavior, there's something going on with them, too. But it feels like nobody's asking. How do you navigate that? Because it, I hear what you're saying about somebody has to be the person who explains, but then... How do you not make it hurt you in the process? One of the things that Naomi, my co-author, brought up in the definition of empathy is that probably the most important aspect is emotional regulation. And the example she gave is of a child. Let's say if a child is five and learns that humpback whales are an endangered species. And that becomes the center of that child's experience of justice in the world. So the child is like, people are killing humpback whales and they're almost extinct. And it becomes this overwhelming thing that like their entire lives become centered on this, this injustice that they see in the world. 
and that is emotionally draining and not sustainable. Mm -hmm. So we have to be able to filter. We have to be able to regulate our emotions and cut off that empathetic response for our own well-being at times. And that regulation is very tricky and requires a certain amount of discipline and requires a certain amount of introspection that does not come easily. But with everything that is happening in our world and all of the, all of the bad things that happen to us every day, that emotional regulation is really necessary. And we see this when people that we love and respect take breaks from social media. Twitter is an amazing tool. And I've made a lot of friends through Twitter. I've made a lot of connections. And it's definitely changed my life in a very positive way. But Twitter is also very emotionally draining because we're constantly deluged with information about terrible things that are happening in the world to people that we care about or people that we empathize with. And it is overwhelming and it's impossible to regulate. So we have tools like, you know, muting, but sometimes you just have to take a break from it because you just cannot process that much bad news. Yeah. I, I've been taking a lot of breaks from it because I just don't, I can't do it anymore. It's not so much that I feel overwhelmed sometimes. It's just, I can't, like, I want to build something happy and good and I can't do that if I'm constantly seeing things that are horrible. Yeah. It's too much. It makes me want to do something, but then I, I also feel very incapable of really doing what I want to do. Like I don't, I don't want to just react to everything bad. Yeah. I think it's important to have an area of focus. That's what keeps me from feeling overwhelmed by injustice. It's like figure out where my strengths are, figure out the universe of things that I care about and see where they overlap. To some degree, it's it's a matter of staying in your lane, right? Like, mm -hmm. I care a lot about racial justice, but I don't have those conversations with people of color because I just amplify the conversations that they're having, or I try to amplify mm -hmm. the conversations they're having, and I don't lean on them to teach me something, and I don't inject myself into those conversations, not because I don't feel strongly about it, but because that's not an area where I can add value except for talking with other white people about issues of racial justice. But see, you know, like that in particular, I have strong feelings about not necessarily what you're saying, Coraline, but I have strong feelings about making conversations like that be so narrowly focused that only a certain persons are allowed to participate. I don't think that that's helpful, which I think some of that, it, that comes from another place, at least when it, from my experience of, how some people feel like if you don't experience pain in the way that I am forced to experience pain, then I don't want to hear what you have to say. But I also feel like this is not just happening in a small like corner. This is happening to everybody in some form or fashion. Not everyone experiences the same pain, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be talking to each other. Because I've just I've also run into the people who are like so so much of an activist that you can never. It's never enough. Like you're never enough for them. And it's just too much. And I just, I, I don't agree with some of the ways that, because I feel like it's like another way of marginalizing people without even always seeing that's what you're doing. That's an excellent point. And I, I really think it's contextual. I struggle with this a lot. I follow a woman on Twitter named Sonia Gupta. She's actually going to be writing the introduction for our book, which I'm super excited about. And a lot of the things that she talks about in terms of being a woman of color 
I experience as a transgender woman, even though I'm white. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm always afraid to say that because I don't want to center myself and my experiences in the things that she's talking about. But I see there's a lot of resonance there. And I think there's some nuance that I can bring to a conversation. But I guess to your point, I have to distinguish between when it's time to have a conversation and when I'm simply reacting to something that someone has said and trying to initiate mm-hmm. a conversation. And well, that's, also, that's a tricky line. It is a tricky line. And I think like in that context, it's really not for you to try to navigate how it should be somebody who is inviting you to that conversation. It shouldn't just be, we have to go like have a meeting and determine if you're allowed to talk. I, I don't think that that's very helpful. And I know that's kind of popular, but I don't like that. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I like that, like inviting inviting broader participation in one of these topics. And to your point, people do specialize in their activism. Yes, yes. I um, think diversity and inclusion goes both ways. I think sometimes people forget that just because you may not have privilege in one situation doesn't mean you don't have any privilege at all. And there are other situations where you have the privilege and you have to open your mouth and say, this is not just about us. We should be listening to other people. And I think some people don't want to give that up. It's almost like they would rather, like, if I'm not going to get to be like who I think I should be in all, in all situations, then I have this one platform. I don't want anybody to get in my platform that I don't think shouldn't be here. And don't recognize that that's also discrimination. And it's kind of hard to point it out because then people start going crazy. But I don't agree that you should do that because if you want other people to listen to you and hear your words, then you have to be willing to give somebody else a chance to talk to you. I really like that a lot, Astrid. How do we make people how do, we make do that? that? Happen? Yeah, how do we make that happen? I, I, I think that part of it is we have to stop fetishizing oppression and pain which is, that's a thin line too. It's a thin line between getting a chance to describe what you feel versus it becoming almost like a pornography of whose experiences are worse. Cause I feel like that happens. And I think if it stops being like a race to the bottom of who gets treated the worst, then you get an opportunity to be more inclusive because everything is not the same, but that doesn't mean there's not equality and discrimination. You know what I mean? That's the promise of intersectional thinking, isn't it? Yeah. And it's challenging because like you said, Coraline is contextual. It's like in one situation, you may be the person who needs to have someone else give you the opportunity to be included. In another situation, you could not be effective either way. In another situation, you might be the person who can include someone else. And all those things could actually happen inside of one instance. And I think yeah. that that's why it's hard to navigate. Uh, but I think it helps when you start to realize that it's not like when you were talking about how empathy could be like a zero sum game. I think that inclusion and discrimination is not zero sum either. I mean, there, yeah. there may be rooms I walk into where people discriminate against me, but there may be other rooms that I walk into where I actually am the one with the power. Yeah. And I don't think that we talk about that. I feel like it's partly because there is this need to try to get stories told that never get to be told. But then there's also, I think sometimes it gets taken to an extreme where it becomes like 
oh, you must be experiencing this because this is what everybody who looks or sounds like you or has some sort of experience like you, this is what they say they experience all the time, but everybody doesn't have those same experiences all the time. And more often, there's usually more layers to what mean, but like what will make a person feel like they're being oppressed or not. That's and a so form of stereotype threat, isn't it? Yes, very much so. I, I mean, I get really passionate about it because it's like, I guess because I see it happening and I don't appreciate that. I feel like there's a time and a place to call people out for, you know, you're, you're taking over the conversation. It's not for you. I feel like that, that does happen. But I also think you can't pretend. And I see this happen with trans women a lot. Anytime they say something, then they get marginalized. Like, how could you assume that you have any moral stance on whether or not you can determine if somebody else's pain is enough? That I don't agree with. I think you can say our story may be, not be the same, which is fine. Or you could say what I'm talking about is not exactly what you're saying. You know, that's fine. But I don't think you can dismiss someone. And I, and I see people get dismissed. And this happens in different contexts, but it, it happens a lot. And I think it happens the worst among people who already have some sort of, I guess, identity that would associate them with a group that's being marginalized or underrepresented. So it's easier for them to dismiss because no one's going to challenge them. I see a lot of that when it comes to transgender women participating in discussions of misogyny. I think there's a reaction that some cisgender women have of like, see, we told you so. You're just experiencing what we've experienced our entire lives. And that detracts from the conversation and is very othering because, yes, for a large portion of my life, I did not experience misogyny in the same way that a cisgender woman would have experienced misogyny. But as a trans person, I experienced misogyny and I suffered under the effects of patriarchy and the way that that affected me just changed when I transitioned. But I was mm -hmm. always subject to those forces. I just experienced them in a different context. Doesn't yeah. that also erase specific forms of trans misogyny as well? Absolutely. I had a, a discussion on Twitter a couple of years ago about whether having a, having a word like trans misogyny is useful or not. I, I see what you mean because it's almost like, why does it have to be different? Yeah, it's the same system of oppression. It's experienced in different ways, but misogyny is experienced in different ways by white women than black women, for example. Yeah. And we do have that massage noir term, which again, I wonder is just fracturing a larger problem in a way that is not necessarily helpful. But I don't mm -hmm. know. I don't, I don't have a strong opinion about it, but I do wonder about it. I wonder if we're, if we're splintering into smaller and smaller groups and intersectionality is not the glue that it's supposed to be to bind us all together. Like, how can we fight back? How can, how can we fight back <sighs> if we're so divided? I agree. My mind says like whenever you have to be split into all these different pieces, it's because you're defining it the wrong way. Um, but that's like a big change to try to get people to start to see, you know, concepts like gender in a whole new way. But I also have that same wonder because I talk with my husband sometimes and I'll tell him because one of the things that I've experienced is that I never felt any type of like sexism until I got married. And I think that part of the reason is because when you're a young woman, I mean, what you're constantly being told is you can do anything. You have to just work hard and, and it'll happen for you. And then when I got married, 
I started to notice that people kind of were like counting down the, my, my time until I was going to become like a stay at home mom, even though I'd never communicated that that was my plan. But they're like, Oh, how long are you going to work? Like, as though, as though getting married means I'm no longer planning to, to work. And so that's an option in this economy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just these assumptions that are made that are based on these ideas that what women really want is to be able to stay home and raise their kids. And I know there are some women who do want that, which I don't think that that's a bad choice for them, but I don't, I didn't like the idea that it was being thrust on me, even though I hadn't said that. So then it was like, well, when are you going to have kids? And when is that going to occur? And I, and I would tell my mom and other people, like, I think it's so strange. Like you can't talk about your, your menstrual cycle without people freaking out, but you'll talk to me about when I'm going to have children as though it's not the same stuff, but it's okay to talk about that. You know, there are some women struggle to, to have kids and people don't even think about that before they ask those types of questions. They have no idea what kind of experiences could be attached to whether or not they have a child. But it started to make me aware of the ways that I'm looked at because I'm female. But then I talk with my husband and I also have these questions of, well, how is he looked at because he's male? Because we don't talk about that either. And for him, it's more like, okay, so when he got married, the expectation is his job is to be the provider, regardless of what I do. So everybody always wants to know what does he do and how much money does he make? And they're going to judge him by that. And there's not a rule book for how to necessarily handle those things very well either. And I also sometimes wonder, and I kind of feel like the things that we see, especially we talk a lot about how women get marginalized because they're women. There's also the opposite end of that that we don't talk about. And I feel like you can't fix one without at least understanding what's going on on the other side. Because there's a lot of stuff I think that happens with men that just don't have an outlet because there's also some of the other things like you're not supposed to talk about how you feel. You're not supposed to explain your emotions to people. You're supposed to, you know, have a stiff upper lip and do what is needed from you, regardless of how much that might take from you, especially because you might have a wife and kids. And I, I feel like they're both unhealthy because then like what happens if we have a child and he's the one who wants to stay home? Uh, the social stigma associated with that is going to be really high too. So it seems like there's not a lot of wellness anywhere. And that's kind of why I don't like this oppression Olympics type of thing. But I also don't want to diminish the fact that there are people who never get to talk. So we should let them have their say. I don't know. It's hard to, to navigate. But I just I get this feeling that a lot of people are living with a lot of pain. And so when you try to say, well, mine is, is more than yours, there's always going to be pushback because... I think there's a lot of pain out there that we don't even talk about. That's not even part of the conversation. I think the language that we use, Astrid, is super important because in the examples that you gave, they're all symptoms of one thing, and that is the strength of patriarchal thinking in our society. And that Mm -hmm. does hurt everyone. And men should be talking about those things and how it affects them and working to make changes there. But the people who call themselves men's right activists are no. not addressing the patriarchy at all. I don't think there is an organized movement among men to address the effects of the patriarchy on men and women or even men 
or mm-hmm. children or anything else. It feels like it's left to the women to do all of, all of the work of pointing out the problems and trying to find solutions to the problems. But we can't do that without male allies because mm-hmm. they're benefiting from the system. They're propping up the system. They're perpetuating the system. All of us are really to some degree, but it's men who have to dismantle the patriarchy. Yeah. There's a particular trap in there for men. I'm thinking about it right now the same way as I think about my depression in that my depression tells me that I can't change things and my depression takes away the energy that I might have to change things. And the particular trap of patriarchy as it applies to men is that if you can't talk about your feelings and you can't, you know, actually care about things that aren't sports, um, that it is unmanly to address the patriarchy. And I mean, it's not a trap you can't get out of, but it's something that keeps you from seeing the system at all. Yeah. Yeah. Because the whole first thing you need to get out of a prison is to know that you're actually in one. Yeah. Yeah. The men's rights activists. My thing with them is, okay, what do you want? Because it feels like they're kind of just wanting to eject what they feel and, and put it on other people. I want everything to be about me. Yeah, but I'm just like, okay, if some of the stuff that I, that they have brought up in certain contexts, I understand what they're saying. Like, but then they don't finish. Then it's just like, yeah, so we should get rid of all of women's rights. I'm like, no, that's not an answer. (laughs) (laughs) What do you want? Like, if, if you want something to change, it would be better if you would say, you know, these things shouldn't be happening. We should fight for change. Right. But that's not what they're saying. They tend to just say, like, that's why feminism sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Which isn't really helpful. But there's stuff I agree. Like, the family court stuff, I think that's a good point that they're making. I don't know why it's always assumed that the mother is always the best option. And some of the kids are, are not benefiting from being with a mother who's not very good for them. Especially if there's a father who's trying to, who wants to raise them. But they they have to fight to do that. I think that that's crazy. I think they have yeah. a point there, but they're not doing anything about it. That's the part I, I agree with but, what you're saying, Coraline. Like they're the ones who actually could change it. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I feel like, I feel like for some of those guys, a lot of that comes from a place of I'm complaining because bitches want my money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and not because it's what's good for them or their children or anything. Yeah. I agree with these. <laughs> To be That's clear, I do want their money, but <laughs> I want to be compensated for my emotional labor. And I, yeah. I don't feel bad about accepting compensation for that. Yeah, but I agree. I don't know. People don't like to talk about that stuff. And I feel like it's really dangerous, though, that the men don't talk about it at all. And not even just the whole system. I think it's dangerous to them on an individual level. If you don't have any outlet, how are you to be okay? You're not okay. You're trained, yeah. at least in my experience of trying to live male for so many years, I was keenly aware of what emotions I was allowed to express presenting male versus the range of expression that women are allowed to express living as women. And I was terrified that people would figure out, like, oh, my God, like, they're not behaving according to gender standards. Maybe something's going on with them. I was so afraid of being discovered and having this deep, dark secret revealed 
that I was maybe more keenly aware of those rules around emotions. So I, I made a conscious effort to only ever express fear and anger because anything wow. else was off limits. Yeah. Yeah. Anything yep. else was off limits. And I think that explains a lot of the behavior that we see among men and the tendency to violence and things like mass shootings or domestic violence or police violence. It's like men aren't given any other outlet and yeah. all of this energy gets channeled into fear, which makes them elect people like Trump and anger, which makes them lash out at others. That is extremely scary. I feel like there's a technical point about domestic violence that it's more about power and control than those other forms of, of expression. But that's fair. Yeah. But that right there is terrifying that you only get fear and anger. Mm-hmm. That's not a life. Yeah. No, I mean, I got a lot less of that than most men. But yeah, I still feel exactly that that's right. This is something that I've had to work on with my own husband, because when we got married, that was like the only thing he would describe to me. And I would be like, I just want to know what you think about something. And it would take like hours of conversation for him to tell me something else. And it took a really, really long time for him to start just telling me, like, I don't even know if he described fear. It was mostly just anger because I think he was afraid to show me fear. And so it took a very long time for him to express things like disappointment or sadness, especially when it's prolonged or things that maybe from a long time ago still really color his views of, of himself or his views of the world that come from like that child version of you that got hurt. That took forever. And I yeah. was very demanding of it because I didn't understand how we were supposed to, like, how am I supposed to know anything and really be able to be your partner if you have this big wall. And he did tell me, you know, because he grew up with a dad who was very like traditional in the sense of I'm a provider and that's my job, but I don't know how to express emotion with you. And it we're, took we're him not a taught really those time. words. <sighs> that's tragic. It's cause that's like what life is. Yeah. I just feel like that's not acceptable. Like how are you supposed to do anything and be able to really feel, because if you shut off emotions, you can't really feel the good ones. Yeah. For me, it was very difficult once I gave myself permission to experience emotions. I had a lot of trouble regulating them because I had, I thought of it kind of mechanically, like there's my mind and um, my mind is connected to my brain. And my brain gets sensory data um, from my body. And then I'm applying rational thought on top of sensory data to make sense oh, oh. of the world around me. And suddenly I had another set of inputs. I had emotional reactions to things that I no longer was willing to ignore. And I didn't know how to balance the signals to the point where I could have a reaction that I was to some degree in control of or responsible for or didn't feel bad about a reaction that wasn't completely overwhelming a reaction that wasn't something that like made me freeze because of the intensity of the emotional reaction that I was having to some incident regulating that still is a big challenge for me like if I get upset about something or if I if something bad happens to me, like these, these feelings are overwhelming because 
I have no experience with regulation. It's something I'm having to learn on the fly. DBT might help a little bit with that, by the way. Yeah. What is DBT? Dialectic behavior therapy. What is that? Dialectic like talking? Yeah. I'm sure there's a technical definition. I've, I've been going through a, a group thing where we go, we're going through a couple of different modules of like this DBT package. And some of it is not particularly useful to me, but, um, you know, the, the core skills are about mindfulness and the one that we're about to start is about, uh, distress tolerance. It's interesting in that it gives you a set of rational tools that you can use to evaluate and interact with your emotions. And it focuses on specific skills that you can practice to uh, help balance your emotions, right? It, the dialectic is about like the tension between your emotional mind and your rational mind. Uh-huh. And they talk about wise mind, which is this place where you can be in both at the same time. That reminds me of something that um, my friend Oren Cha said to me when I was going through some difficulty. She said that her therapist used the metaphor of a train. So you're at a train station and your emotions are trains. So a train pulls into the station. You can observe the fact that the train is now there. So you can observe the fact that sadness has come or despair has come or happiness Mm -hmm. has come. And then you make a choice if you're going to go onto that train and travel with it or not. And even if you make the choice to travel with that train for a while, you always have the option of stepping back off. Yeah, there's a couple of variations on that metaphor, like ships going down the uh, down the river, cars on the freeway. Yeah. It's all things that are going past you. And one of the difficult things for me was figuring out the difference between recognizing and validating an emotion that I was experiencing and not allowing that emotion to control me or to force me to react in a certain way. Like the first part of that was learning that yes, emotions are valid and having to, having to sit with that. And then the harder part was like, okay, I have this emotion. Now what? So what's interesting about that Coraline is some of that is something that I had to learn growing up because I grew up in an affluent white suburb and my parents were concerned that I couldn't be a super emotional child because of the projections that people will assume I'm like what I am because I'm a black child. Right. So I had to learn like just because I'm sad, I can't really feel completely sad in a way that I show because that for other people, they look at me in a totally different way and that can put my life in danger. That's what my parents were worried about. So they would teach us how to process how we feel. And they're like, you know, when you're home, like you can have a moment, but you only can have a moment because you can't just go on. But you definitely can't do that when you're out in public because it's just it's not good for you. So I feel like I think some of what you're talking about of this, like how do you how you learn how to deal or not deal with emotions is applied in so many ways, because some of what you were saying also reminded me of people that I have met that come from like really tough neighborhoods or backgrounds they don't know how to process other things. It's just, they're so used to having to be like on guard that if someone's really nice to them, they will lash out because they don't, they don't understand why they're doing it. They feel like it must be some sort of manipulation. They don't want to feel like they're losing their edge. It's very scary to them. 
to not have to like defend themselves all the time. And it manifests in a kind of similar way of just wanting to cut everything off because they can't, they can't process it. Yeah. It's like going through trauma. What you were saying about your parents sort of training you really Mm -hmm. made me notice again how much that uh, emotional stuffing is very much a part of whiteness too. I learned that, Sam, growing up. So what I learned that was different is that in the world, I had to have certain behavior, but at home I was allowed to be more free. Yeah. But for my friends who were white, they were not. That was shocking to me because I knew that they liked to come over to my house, but I didn't realize always why until I would go to their house. And it was <laughs> as though they were constantly being judged. Like they were constantly being evaluated. And especially, I think, because a lot of them were coming from families where they had these expectations for what they were going to be and do in their life. And it was just every, it was like the most nerve wracking, stressful thing. And I don't know how, like that feels like an oppression of its own because it's like they couldn't just be themselves. Like it wasn't, it was not okay. It was just not okay. And I, and I did not come from that. I mean, it was more like certain things were separated. Like, okay, your achievement is important, but that's not who you are. It's your achievement. So Mm -hmm. when you're with your family, you better be in this room laughing and talking and joking with everybody because you're no different than them. You know, it doesn't matter what you have. And it was almost like the opposite when I would go to their Mm -hmm. house. Yeah. Echoes of Puritanism and then Victorianism. Gosh, that Victorianism, man. Yeah. It's still doing a number on the world. But see, that's why I kind of feel like, like back to what we had just, what we started out talking about with the different people who feel like they are, their pain is more, like you don't know everybody's pain. They can have all these markers that make it seem like they're privileged, but they may not be. Not in the way you think anyway, or not everywhere. I almost think that discussion of privilege at the individual level is less fruitful than discussion of privilege at a higher level. Because it can be invisible, like you're saying, and it can be bad to make assumptions. And I certainly make assumptions. I I, I talk about cisgender heterosexual white men all the time, chads. Um, but <laughs> cisgender heterosexual Anglo dude is what chad stands for. Um, so it is easy to make those generalizations. But the generalizations are helpful in terms of talking about structural systems of oppression and structural patterns, yeah, with privilege. But it is important that we don't translate that down to the individual level and say, Sam, you're a cisgender, heterosexual, able-bodied, white male, therefore, I'm going to assume all these things about you. Uh Right, and then it becomes very easy for me to get out of that by saying, well, but I, I grew up poor, so I don't have privilege. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. I think it's more like there's this institution of social hierarchies that play on everybody. Mm -hmm. And everybody's involved at some level. No one gets out scot-free. But we still have to talk about the system. And it's the system that we want to dismantle. Like, we want to change the people in our lives to make them better and make them healthier and make them happier and more fulfilled. And that's on us to do that in our spheres. But the larger problem we're trying to address is structural. I think it's important to remember that. It is. Like, I feel like in America, we talk so much about race that we forget about class. And we act like that's not a system that people are being affected by. We can't talk about class. 
Well, it doesn't exist in America, right? A lot of a lot of conservatives use class as an excuse to not talk about race, though. As a dog whistle, it's complicated. It's complicated. It is complicated, and there is classism, and there is racism, and they do intersect. Yes, it's. I think what's hard in America is that we used race as a proxy for class, and then that wasn't always that. That didn't stick completely. So then we still talk about race, which still has its own things, but class we never discuss at all. Unless we're using as, it as a proxy for race. Yes, yes. Well, that's not real. Then we're not really talking about class. We're just, you know, yeah. putting the word in there. Right. But we don't really talk about class. Like one of the things that I notice, and I don't know how many people actually talk about it, although there was that, that book that came out recently, is that there's so much description of poor black and brown people that I think it is to the disadvantage of poor white people. Like they don't, I think a lot of poor white people don't realize that they're, they are the poor people too, because it's like they are fed information as though they're not. And then race is used as a means of saying, well, they're the reasons why you don't have what you should have. So go be mad at them. That is literally part of the construction of whiteness. What do you mean? I Sam? figured that out on my own, Sam. <laughs> what do you, can you expand what that? on that? What do you mean? So whiteness was this was constructed because well, because of a lot of reasons. Um, but part of how it worked was that it, it is designed to divide and separate people so that poor white people won't have solidarity with poor people of color. Because they will say, well, I may be dirt poor, but by God, at least I'm white. Yeah, and that's and, for their disadvantage. Yeah, and you can see you can see over time uh, how the definition of whiteness has changed, right? Because Chinese people used to be part of whiteness until they weren't. Um, it took a while for Irish people to become part of whiteness. And Italians. Same, yeah. And Greeks. it basically was this sort of strategic way of separating people so that the folks in power could stay in power essentially yeah but uh, so going back to class for a second though uh, my partner was describing a training that she went to one time where um, they handed out sheets of paper that contained different sets of skills that you might have depending on what class you're in and i, w I would love to see the whole list uh, but the ones that i remember are you know how to apply for um, food stamps versus uh, you know how to work with a caterer to organize a party. That's interesting. Yeah, different skills that are taught to people in different classes. Yeah. And how people, once they're, they can function very well inside those contexts, but, you know, that's part of the awkwardness of going across classes is that you get into these contexts where you don't know the rules. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, anyway. No, that's interesting. I, I do feel like class is this really complex thing that we never discussed that is actually probably more important than a lot of the things we do as far as its effects on people because there's so many proxies for class. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's interesting what you're, what you're getting at there, Sam, or, or what I, what I heard you getting at. And I think it relates back to the rest of our discussion. You're not aware of those things until you change class. I wasn't mm -hmm. aware of a lot of things until I changed the gender I was presenting as. And going back to what you said near the beginning, Astrid, I mentioned staying in my lane and you talked about the danger of staying in your lane. Maybe by shifting contacts, by not staying in our lanes, 
that's when we're gaining real insight. We have the opportunity to. I think a lot of what I learn when I'm in environments that I'm not familiar with is how much they are very much like me, but they don't know it or they think they're not. In order to be able to learn any from that, anything from that, you have to be willing to tolerate that cognitive dissonance. Like the example that you gave, Astrid, of somebody who grows up in a tough neighborhood and can't, or, you know, doesn't know how to respond when somebody is, performs kindness. Mm-hmm. You have to be willing to be vulnerable, to be willing to admit that you might be wrong. So many people just can't do that. We don't know how to do that. Yeah, just something about what you were saying, Sam, is making me think of like people who I know who would say that they are middle class, but they would know how to apply for food stamps, but they also will drive a nice car and, you know, buy certain types of things. So it makes them feel like I'm not poor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to see the effects of of our industrial and post-industrial economy on the markers of poverty. Yeah. Because we have certain kinds of physical wealth, but we're still food insecure. Yeah. Economically insecure. Medically insecure. Oh, God, yes. That's, I would say, the majority of everybody. Yeah. So, Astrid, what I'm taking away from this is when I talk about the impact of oppression on me and people like me, I'm going to try to keep the door open for people who don't share my exact set of characteristics or my exact experiences, but who feel solidarity or sympathy, or they see a reflection of that in their own lives. I'm going to try and make room for broader conversations so I can come at it from the perspective of a transgender woman, but not limit the conversation just to other transgender women. Yeah. I don't know how I'm going to do that, but I'm going to make a conscious effort. (laughs) It's so hard. (laughs) It's so hard, but I feel like I think it's what happens when we watch movies, which sounds like it's superficial, but like I can watch a movie and there can be, and and the characters that I identify are not always people, and for like most of the time, they are not people who have anything to do with what I would call my experience in any way. But there's something about whatever their arc is that I can relate to. And I think we understand that when we watch movies or television shows, but then we, it's like, we forget it in the real world. It's like, we just tell ourselves, well, that's a movie. So they just wrote that. And so that's why it's that way. But in the real world, it's not like that. But I think more often than not, it is like that. One of the things I, I was talking about with somebody recently is like, you never know who's watching you and how what you're saying and doing affects them. And I think that we talk a lot about allies and I know people are really struggling with how to be a good ally, but I think sometimes it's just listening and not even because your intention is to be an ally. It's just listening because they're human and they have their own story and maybe they, what they're saying, it's not like yours, but if they say it's relatable to them, then let them relate. Yeah. It is hard to do though. Especially when you're in pain. I think that's the problem is that when you're in pain, you're trying to get through your pain and you don't necessarily want to try to be like this open vessel for others because you're just dealing with your own pain. But I think the problem is that I think the majority of us are dealing with pain most of the time. So then if you never can make the door crack open, you'll never get those opportunities to really grow. I think it's just really hard to do it. We have to create safety around us, right? 
like the person you were talking about who couldn't process someone being nice to them. It's because yeah. they, they weren't in a place of safety. And for your husband, it took him a long time to realize that being with you, that was a, a place of safety where it was okay for him to peer around the wall and yeah. open up and share. So maybe what we should really be working toward is creating a sense of safety with the people in our lives and letting them know it's okay to feel pain and it's okay to express your pain and I'm not going to be comparing it to my own pain. I'm going to hear you. I'm going to listen. I'm going to sit with you. Yeah, I think that's great, Coraline. Maybe that's what we should be doing in general is just trying to make safety be a priority. Yeah, I've been with my partner for 18 years and I'm only just starting to get to that place. I've only just in the last week or two, I've been able to tell her things that I haven't told her for the whole 18 years that we've been together. Yeah. Does it feel good or does it feel scary? Yes. Yes to both? Yeah. Mostly it feels good. I think because I had a wake-up call that I made it so that I couldn't ignore how bad my depression and isolation had become. So that's what I'm struggling with right now. But yeah, what you said about making a place of safety really resonates with me. Maybe we shouldn't focus so much on staying in our lane and telling other people to stay in their lanes, but we should leave openings for people to move freely and get us all to our destinations. I do like talking about it in terms of safety because that feels like the thing that's missing the most. Yeah. You know, people are afraid of everything all the time now. I mean, yeah. not even just now, but it just feels like it's even more prevalent. Even that coded phrasing of economic inst- insecurity, right, that was used around the Trump election. I mean, even like directly on its face, that boils down to safety. Mm-hmm. When you were talking, Sam, about how it's taken you a really long time, it also made me think of just in your own family. I mean, a lot of the people who you grow up with who are related to you are not people that always give you that room to be a whole person. Definitely not. And I, no. It feels like if you, if I can't get it here, then how am I supposed to get this anywhere? And it must not exist. Yes. Yeah. It's yes. Be possible. Yeah. And you can't really control who you're related to, but it does feel like maybe if there was a little bit more emphasis on making a place be a safe space, it would be more possible for people to have those skills. You know, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have to be this like esoteric thing that you're trying to figure out what to do. I know that this is not exactly the same thing, but in anthropology, we talk about this in terms of how human groups evolve. Because when you're a smaller group, like, and I don't remember all the technical terms correctly, but when you're a smaller group, I think it's like a band, it's like 150 people-ish. You're related to all those people in some way, usually. And so the concept of who your family is and who's supposed to be responsible for you is shared. Because even though you may not technically be part of the same immediate families, you're somewhat close relation and everybody looks out for each other. But when those groups start to get bigger, then it's easier to separate. And that changes. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that before. Dunbar's number. But this is more like when they talk about an anthropology, they don't really talk about that number. They talk about kinship and social structure. Mm. Like there's the nomadic bands, which are smaller. And then there's the ones that are stationary and they're a little bit bigger. 
But then once you get past families, that's when you start getting into serious hierarchy where there's usually people who are rulers and people who are slaves. And then there's all these different structures in between. Mm. And they say that that happens because your ability to recognize someone as you mm-hmm. goes away when there's more, more people. So this is like over 500 or a thousand, something like that. Then you don't think of everybody as related to you. And so then you don't care for them in the same way as if they as when they're smaller. And even now, like if you go to smaller islands, a lot of times the people who are indigenous to that island is how they treat like the kids can run around because everybody watches children. It's not I watch my kids. Right. Right. Uh, but then as you get into these bigger groups, that goes away and it creates all this insecurity because the concept is we we didn't evolve to be alone like this because we been like this hunter gatherer nomadic thing for something like 60,000 years. And it's only been in the last few thousand years that we've gotten bigger than that. And so we don't have the skills to function fully without that kind of support group, which we used to just have. We were just born into it. That's just what you had your whole life. And now you have to go make it. And that's much tougher because you have to find the connection between you and another person and build the trust. Whereas before it was just kind of implied because that's what you had to do to survive. So you didn't have to have those skills. Right. That is a very valuable skill in our connected world that we live in today. And we do see people with their chosen families, with their new tribes that they have created out of nothing, banding together to provide um, a sense of emotional safety for each other. I have my private Slack community that I've communicate, I've curated over a period of many, many years. And I know that's a place where I can talk about absolutely anything and I won't get judged for it, not be supported and nothing's going to leak out, but it takes a lot of work to create a space like that. I -hmm. can't imagine trying to find a space like that, but maybe that's something we should be focusing on is how to create spaces where, where we do have that safety. Yeah, I think we should be. I think, there are a lot of women in tech spaces with varying degrees of toxicity. We have to see past the surface characteristics that we share. Like I always laugh when people talk about the trans community because there is no trans community. <laughs> it's a bunch of people trying to figure things out and making temporary alliances when they get pissed off about something. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think we, we tend to form communities around surface level things like, Oh, women in tech. That's obviously a group. So everyone who's a woman in tech obviously shares the same frustrations and fears and doubts and aspirations. So we'll just, we'll just make a, a blob and assume that everyone who comes into this blob feels the same way and, and needs the same things when that's so untrue. I think those tribes that we form can't be based around like, Oh, we have this shared characteristic. That means we, mm-hmm. we belong together. Because that, yeah, especially that doesn't because work. that's coming from the outside world. The outside world yeah. thing, the characteristics is for some reason a problem. And then now all the people who share are trying to support each other, which can be okay, but that doesn't make you all the same yeah. or even have the same needs. I agree. I, it has to be more authentic than that. It has to yeah. be people who feel real to you. It ha- yeah, it has to go deeper. I hear this tension between, you know, that number of 150 or so or what was it, 500 or 1,000, where people, mm-hmm. you can no longer approach people as people. You have to perform abstraction, you know, mm-hmm. classify people. 
there's this tension between our need to conserve our limited cognitive resources and the need to approach everybody as their own unique person, which takes a lot of effort. I don't know how to address that tension. I'm just it's it's it. contextual though, Sam. So it's like if you go to a foreign country and everybody speaks another language and then you hear somebody speaking English, like you feel like, oh, mm. this is a person like me. Mm. Now they could be Australian, but they're speaking English. So right. you can talk to them. Um, but it doesn't mean that in your regular life, if you saw that person, you'd be like, you are, you're part of my tribe. You wouldn't necessarily feel like that. Right. Yeah. And I think that's also sometimes like why the signaling gets mixed up, like what you were saying, Coraline, where like when you're in a sea full of men and there's just you and there's one other woman then you're like, Hey chick, yeah, you're part of my group. <laughs> but in, in your, in your regular life, that's not what it looks like. So would you still, would you still feel that connection to that person? That's the hard part. Yeah. I feel like my reflection would be, we should grow safe spaces instead of just, you know, conglomerates of minority spaces. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it comes down to safety for me too. Like Berlin, you were talking about trying to figure out how to make face for other people with different perspectives. And that's just, you know, again, to me, it feels like how do you make it safe for other people to participate in the same conversation? Um, yeah. And then, you know, I've already talked about how important the safety was to me personally. Yeah. As a thing I'm working on right now. I feel like part of what makes things safe is being seen, being heard and knowing that it matters. Yeah. So maybe if we just start with trying to do that for others, that would be a, a good beginning. Yeah. That opens the door, right? Yeah. Not just that you get to say your piece and then leave, but that it actually matters that you say it to somebody else. Yeah. So this has been an interesting conversation um, between people who do feel safe with one another. And we've shared quite a bit. That's very personal. And I want to hear more. I want to continue this conversation. I want to get more insights. I want to hear about the things that you're going through in your life. And I want to let you know that I'm listening to you. And I want you to join us. So go to patreon.com slash greater than code. Pledge at any level, join our Slack community, and let's continue the conversation. Thanks. Thanks.